Your congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll read the first six verses. You can find it on page 1384 in your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll read the first six verses. Let us hear the holy, infallible, inspired word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge." Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. May he also bless the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to this portion in Hebrews 13, we title these first six verses, and which also verses that follow as final counsel. Final counsel from the author of Hebrews, or you could say from the Holy Spirit Himself. God Himself counsels with us. And last week in this counsel, we looked at love and hospitality and compassion. And today we will look at marriage and material. And I'll explain a little bit as to why I divided this up. It's not only because I didn't want an hour-plus sermon uh, last week, but uh, also, also it, it's broken up in this sense. Think of our lives as Christians in this world. And think of it in the sense of all being in one ship. As true Christians, we're in this ship, sailing on the waters of this world that God has created, that now has become corrupt due to sin and and the consequences of it, that's now also filled with, as it were, the sewage of humanism in our postmodern, pluralistic society. And in this ship, We have, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ as the captain of our salvation sailing us through this life and leading us to that eternal harbor of glory to be with Him forever. And here as we're floating in this world with the storms beating upon the ship in countless ways, impacting the ship in countless ways, We need to be aware. We need to be aware of the dangers of that water getting into the ship. Otherwise, the ship will sink. Thanks be to God, we have the captain of our salvation at the helm and and the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ will never sink. It will be brought to this eternal harbor. And yet, the author to Hebrews has warned us again and again and again 
about how we live in this life out of the very truths that we have heard from it. And so we need to take those seriously. And we need to take seriously the fact that in this ship, brotherly love must continue. In this ship, hospitality must be evident. In this ship, compassion needs to needs to happen and be part of our lives and our hearts and our interactions with others. But also, marriage needs to be honored and covetousness needs to be pumped out that we would be filled with contentment in our God in this ship. And you might say that as we come through Hebrews 13 here, that it is addressing a church throughout the world, not only to particular places that Hebrew Christians were gathered, and they were being challenged by the first century Roman culture of its day. It was very similar even to our culture today. And so you see how the Holy Spirit is using even Hebrews 13 here to address us today. Because truly, there's nothing new under the sun. And in this final console, it is as fitting for the Hebrew Christians in the first century as it is for us today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to be reminded of those things that need to be honored and those things that need to be pumped out, as it were, out of those village pumps in order to maintain a healthy voyage to eternal life. And the first consul he gives us is that of, in this, uh, the, the third con- fourth consul he gives us in this passage is marriage. Marriage. Notice how verse 4 highlights this. Marriage is honorable among all. The bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In that verse, he's upholding marriage in three ways. And he's upholding it in unmistakably clear ways. He addresses the importance of holding God's wonderful gift of marriage and sexuality in high Regard. Notice how he does that. First of all, he does so through honor. Marriage is honorable. For the first century Christians, the idea of celibacy and, and a separate life or monasticism was, was highly valued. And so the, the argument went like this. If I could only be free from the influence of the world and and the influences of sexuality, and I could be separate from it all, and as it were, flee to the mountains and live a a, a separate life from everyone, then then you know it's all going to be a lot easier to serve God. And and Paul brings that up in First Corinthians seven in some ways as well. And 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 therefore we recognize that indeed there can be a blessing to a celibate life and. And yet, at the same time, it was not necessarily honorable to God either. And the author to Hebrews wants to point that out. It was not honorable to God if it was used in the wrong way. 
Secondly, he points out that many Christians then and now use what is called, we are free from the law. Even, even the seventh commandment, committing adultery, we're freed from it. And so there's an all-out attack on marriage, which is really an attack on creation and redemption itself, let alone the law of God. Basically, these would say that marriage is irrelevant. And we can pursue sexual fulfillment by what is gratifying to my own flesh. In other words, if it feels good, do it and live that way. Where genders are not an issue and boundaries, there are no marriage bonds and vows that are, that are going to come in between how I want to live. There's no relationships that need to be seen as important, but rather what is gratifying to me. What is fulfilling to me. And marriage, after all, limits this freedom. And people want freedom. And they want a fulfillment of their own desires in the way that they think is best. This was dishonorable. And the author to Hebrews says, no, God's Word is absolutely clear. Marriage is and must be honorable among all. Not some, but all. And again, I want to qualify, especially for singles who even may desire marriage or maybe are single and seeking to serve God in their singleness, that that also is honorable according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. That is honorable. If you have a desire to give yourself solely to the service of God and see that relationship as fulfilling and you want to do so in singleness, that is honorable. But so is marriage. Marriage is also honorable. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you cannot remain celibate, then indeed get married. Get married. Because marriage is honorable. And God's Word is very clear about that. Especially Genesis chapter 2, where God gave Eve unto Adam and says, Leave father and mother and cleave unto your wife and become one flesh. It's honorable. This was God's created order. This This is God's blueprint for marriage. One woman, one man come together in an undissolvable union. And that's what Jesus says too as He honors it. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the Holy Spirit even further honors marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 by portraying marriage as that beautiful relationship with Christ and His church. And so therefore, if God the Father in creation honors marriage, God the Son in His life and His ministry honors marriage, and the Holy Spirit honors marriage, we also ought to honor marriage as Christians. Marriage needs to be guarded as one of the most precious gifts that God has given us in creation, in His Word, and in His glorious redemption. And so I want to ask you, uh, point blank, 
How are we treating each other and talking about each other and marriage in an honorable way? Maybe I get more specific. How do you talk to your children about marriage? Do you talk to your children already when they're young and growing up as they're, as they're being molded? That marriage and singleness must both seek to serve the Lord and witness His grace. And if you want to evaluate your communication, does your communication suggest in any way that marriage should take place maybe at a specific time in life? At a time when you finally got your education requirements and, and your academic requirements so that you can be prepared in this world? Or do you say to your children, well, once you get enough money to buy a house, then, then you should get married. Or then you can get married. It, is marriage contingent upon something other than a right relationship with God and a desire to witness that in marriage, then you are not treating marriage in an honorable way. For marriage to be treated in an honorable way, God first must be recognized as the one who does a transforming work in our hearts and lives and brings two young people together with a desire to serve the Lord in and through their marriage. Everything else is peripheral. Yes, it's important to get your education. It can be done longer. It's important to, to have provisions day by day, and God will provide. But how do you talk to your children about marriage? Is it in an honorable way? How do you witness the honor of marriage in your own marriage? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her? I don't know, but that's a tall order for us as husbands. An impossible order. Wives, do we give of ourselves sacrificially, submitting also to our husbands? Do we Speak well of our husbands as Proverbs 31 women in, in this life. Husbands, how do you talk to your co-workers? Is your wife simply a ball and chain? Someone who ruins your fun? Someone who keeps you busy with her honeydew list? One who says at work to his co-workers, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's not an honorable way to view marriage. How, how, does, how do we as Christians, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, honor Marriage. You see, if, if we don't honor what God honors, then we are not honoring God. It's as simple as that. 
Marriage must be honored by all Christians. Period. And we as Christians need to clearly and honorably speak about marriage and sexuality. And at times we need to discipline when brothers and sisters fall into sexual sins. Why? Because marriage must be honored by all. And the marriage bed undefiled. So not only must marriage be honored, but marriage must be seen as something to be kept pure. The marriage bed undefiled. Very simply, this means we are called to sexual purity before marriage and throughout marriage. I think the applications abound here, don't they? Especially in a sex-craved culture that's affected by a porn epidemic. Marriage needs to be undefiled. And in this porn epidemic of our day, it affects people biologically, psychologically, relationally, and it has terrible spiritual effects. And so no wonder you'd want to pump all of these things out, the sewage out. I don't need to give so many statistics. You can find them for yourselves online. But the problem with pornography today is it's so available, accessible, affordable, anonymous, appealing, and aggressive, and addictive that it seeks to tear us all down. It's affecting almost every family in every church throughout this world. And it's destroying families. One statistic I can give is that there's a statistic that the root cause of, of divorce of 56% of divorces is pornography. It's not something to trifle with. It's not harmless. It's rather horrific and graphic and abusive and disgusting. And we need to view it that way. What about premarital sexual relationships? Young people, remember the other person who you are in a relationship with is created in the image of God. And this person has feelings. And most importantly, this person has a soul. Don't just think about today and my gratification today. Think about five years from now, ten years from now. The guilt and the shame and, and the lack of trust that will permeate your marriage relationship if you engage in this. Extramarital relationships. Have you ever considered that God has such a high view of marriage that He allows something He even hates, namely divorce, when we break the marriage vows? 
that tells me that God takes His requirement for purity before marriage and in marriage absolutely seriously. I wonder how much our culture has actually affected us as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. With LGBTQ promotions, Maybe we take a clear stand there, you say, Pastor. And we defend and honor marriage. One woman, one man. And yet, at the same time, we kind of sweep sins of pornography and sins of premarital sexual relationships under the rug as worse sin, and, and don't consider them as equal sins. Don't forget, dear congregation, that porn will lead to premarital relationships and premarital relationships will often lead to extramarital relationships which lead to breakdowns in marriage and relationships and brokenness in family, brokenness in the church, brokenness in society. It's no wonder Christians have a radical call to purity. Will we flee sexual immorality and run the race that's set before us? If not, be warned. Because marriage comes with a warning. A warning to all types of sexual sins. Fornicators and adulterers. The broadest of the two words brought here in our passage. God says He will judge. God's Word is terrifyingly clear. Not only here, but elsewhere. Those who participate in such sins will not inherit the kingdom of God, we find in 1 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 5 reminds us that God's wrath comes down upon those who participate in such sins. 1 Thessalonians 4, God will punish for such sins. And Revelation 21, the sexually immoral will be cast into the lake a burning fire forever. God's judgment is not only future judgment, it's also present judgment. Because Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6 that when we participate in such sins, we sin against our own body. Ephesians 5 says, who would ever would even hate his own body? And so we find these sins bring upon us epidemics of all kinds of STDs and epidemics of mental illnesses, of guilt and self-hatred. We think of the relational problems it brings of alienation and estrangement and hatred. We think about how society degrades into jungle ethics. Murdering even the children in the womb. Anyone who imagined that sexual sins are not a serious thing have not come to know a God who is a consuming fire. 
What does this have to do with the church? Everything. Because here we are as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is this, that immorality perverts theology. Remember that picture of a ship. As the sewage gets in and begins to fill it, and it begins to rot out and sink to the bottom, it will sink faster than the Titanic if we don't pump out the sewage. So serious, one minister in a group give this illustration. He says, in my ministerial, we pray together and we say, Lord, if adultery would lie in the future of any of us and we should continue to live in it, then take us home now. Better to be dead than to damage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in damaging the church in this way, we tear apart brotherly love. We cannot have compassion. It's impossible when the marriage is dishonored and sexual abuse and bondage are allowed and even promoted. So serious. Honor, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Well, let's move on to verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. This final counsel includes marriage and, lastly, material. And he does so in a negative and a positive way again, doesn't he? Marriage, is, it's honorable and it can't be defiled. Material, let your conduct be without covetousness, but be content and positive and a negative. The first here he is pointing out the negative. Do not covet. It's plainly forbidden throughout Scripture. Jesus even says to his disciples, explaining to them how hard it is to enter into the kingdom of, of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is how can we ever be saved? Jesus' point was that it's not impossible to be saved if you have wealth, but it is impossible if you trust in riches and you trust in your material and you love it and cherish it for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why he calls us in Sermon on the Mount not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. Because he tells us very plainly in Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and material and money. It doesn't work. And so we get this tension, don't we? That wealth is a very tricky thing and a very tempting gift from God. Wealth is not forbidden in Scripture. However, the love and desire of wealth is very clearly forbidden. 
As a matter of fact, wealth can be a great advantage when used to the kingdom, to the benefit and to the extension of the kingdom of God. But I think we all know when we look at our heart, it also has many disadvantages. Because it's, it's terribly difficult to trust in God while you have lots of wealth. Because it seems as if once we have a lot of wealth, we aren't nearly as dependent upon God, and we only want more of it. Think of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He will just want more and more. He says, nor he who loves abundance, even if they have a lot, it will only want more increase. It's all vanity, he says. You're just chasing after more and more and more. And you're never satisfied. I think we look at our own hearts and lives and we we can all see that. We can even think about what are the things we dream about. Maybe first as you lay on your bed and you're thinking and dreaming and and desiring your first car. And you think, if I just get that first car, then then I'll be be happy. I'll be content and I'll be satisfied. And and pretty quick, it's, oh, I also need a a first house. And, And then it becomes, I need a nicer car and a bigger house or maybe a second house. And all the toys to go along with it. Otherwise, I can't be happy. And you just want more, and you want more, and you want more. And soon, you become a slave to the material gifts that God has given. And then, there's no room for God. There's no room for His Word. There's no room for His people. You see how covetousness is a real problem for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it stands clear here to us because we are very very wealthy people when we compare ourselves to the rest of this world this is a special warning even for us it comes from the captain of our salvation it comes from the helmsman of this ship that we are on, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he warns us that brotherly love cannot continue. Hospitality will not take place. Compassion will not be exercised by someone who is a lover of money or material goods. How can marriage even be honored and the bed undefiled if we are a coveting person, a covetous person, and we are coveting another person's spouse? Brothers and sisters, do not covet. Let your conduct, all of your conduct, be without covetousness, but be content. Be content with such things as you have. Obviously, this is just the opposite of coveting. It's to be satisfied with your provisions, your material provisions. It's to be satisfied with the talents that God has given you. It's to be satisfied with the godly relationships that He has given to you. And yet, 
It is extremely difficult. And in a certain sense, impossible. Because we were created to be fulfilled. We were created to have a full life. You find that evident even from a child who's just born. Crying out for provision from its mother. You find that when you're at someone's deathbed seeking to be peaceful and content even in and through death. And all in between, so often our hearts cry out in an entitled way that we deserve more and better. So serious is this that Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 is looking at all that he has done and, 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 and then he reads this, this commandment, you shall not covet. And he finds himself as a completely undone sinner. And he says, oh, the good that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't be doing, that I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. This gets right at the heart of who we are, even as sinners saved by God's grace. It takes real grace. It takes daily administrations of grace to be content. And some have a little more disposition to it, a positive disposition to it than others. And we need to promote it. As a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, promote contentment. And that should cause us to turn on the bilge pumps to pump out the sewage of covetousness from the ship of the family of God. This is not a grace that comes naturally. It comes from God. It comes through His Son, the perfect illustration of contentment who left His glory in heaven and came to dwell with us, to suffer and to die for us, that He might be raised and we with Him to unto everlasting life. This comes from His Spirit who gives us grace to be content. You can look for the remedy everywhere else, but you won't find it. One person even looked for the remedy. One king. The story goes like this. He was suffering from some serious disease. And his wise men said, well, you could be cured if you could just find someone in your realm that is truly content and take his shirt and wear his shirt and you will receive that same kind of contentment. And that will heal you. And so the search went out throughout his realm to find a content person. And they couldn't find anyone. And finally they found someone. But the problem was he didn't have a shirt. He was content without a shirt. So there was nothing to pass on. A cute story, you might say. But it reminds us 
it reminds us that contentment will never be found in anything physical. It will never be found naturally in our own hearts, but it will be found when our hearts are radically changed by the power of God and we find our contentment in Him. It's a heart that depends on God. It's a heart that depends upon the captain of our ship because He sets the rules. He provides the graces necessary. And He brings the ship into its eternal harbor. And He will never, ever desert the helm of His ship. That ship that's carrying His people. His people who have been purchased by His precious blood. And that's why the author to Hebrews says, He Himself has said, I will never leave you I will never forsake you. God has said this throughout His Word. He said it in very difficult situations, such as Jacob fleeing from Esau, or Moses and his leadership, or Joshua as they entered the promised land, or David as he counsels his son Solomon. The Lord has promised He will never leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself comes to His disciples just as He's ready to ascend to heaven. And He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He says it to us today. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's not a situation in life where God will leave us when we depend upon Him, when we're content with Him. He won't even leave us for just a little while. Even though it seems as if He hides His face from us at times, He's still with us. He has promised it. He can't go back on His Word. The question is not whether God is with us. The question is whether we're content with God. Are we content with His presence? Are we content with His Word? Are we content with His Son? Are we content with the everlasting life that He has purchased for us and promised to us. Paul had to learn this. So I suspect most of us do too. That's why he could, he said Philippians 4, even though I have a lot, I have to learn the secret. I've learned the secret of contentment, he said. To be content in every situation. I had to learn it. And in learning it, he says, even though I have nothing, I possess everything. 2 Corinthians 6. He even tells Timothy, leaders of the church need contentment because Godliness with contentment is great gain. Have I, have you learned contentment? Let me ask it to you this way. When the storms of life and the storms of our culture are beating upon the ship, are you content to follow the captain's direction? 
to trust in his wisdom, and he will lead the ship safely to harbor. Why do I ask it in that way? Well, history reveals that depending on God, trusting him, obeying him, and being content in him and from it, in, in, in all things from him, it comes with a great cost. Many have lost their livelihoods. Others have lost their lives for trusting in God in this way. Even some of these Hebrew Christians. That's why the author to Hebrews says this. This content, contentment gives them the grace to boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man can kill the body, but not the soul. God, however, has power to destroy both body and soul in hellfire forever. Our God is a consuming fire. And as the storm clouds are on us, the wind is blowing. Yeah, the seas are getting rough. It could get a lot rougher. There are two things that we need to take seriously from our text today. That we need grace to remain secure in the ship of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to honor marriage and we need to be content. And we can't have wrong views on sexuality and on money and material. Our contentment and our lives and our marriages must announce to our fellow Christians in the whole world that Christ is with us and in us. Chrysostom did this as he came before the Roman Empire and was threatened with banishment. He replies to him, Thou canst not banish me from the world. It is my father's house. The emperor says, But I will slay thee. Nah, thou canst not, said the noble champion of faith, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I will take away your treasures, he said. Chrysostom answered, Nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Emperor said, But I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left. Chrysostom answered, Nay, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? Congregation, may the Lord give us grace day by day to live out of this final consul in Hebrews by his grace 
to let brotherly love continue because we need each other. We need each other more than at any other time in all of my lifetime and in history. He says, let hospitality abound. We need the fellowship of the saints and the care of the family of God. We need compassion for those who are being mistreated. And in order to protect it, we need to have the grace to honor marriage and be content while pumping out the sewage of fornication, of adultery, and of covetousness. Let us do so because the Lord is our helper, the captain of our salvation, the very anchor of our soul. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace. Because, Lord, who among us can say that we are content in all things? That our conduct is without covetousness? That we have not lusted after the things of this world? And even inappropriate relationships? O oh God, be merciful to us and grant us that grace to know that there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. That in that forgiveness you grant us your spirit to expose all the sewage that lies in our own hearts and lives. Grant us grace, O oh Lord, to flee from it, to purge it from our lives, that we would live with integrity, and that we would, that we would die knowing that you are our helper. Go with us and cause thy church to shine brightly as a light especially in the things that you honor, may we also honor. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.